Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 78, and I've got a special guest for you today. But before we get to that guest, go ahead and like, subscribe, follow the video, the podcast, do whatever you need to do to stay in touch with us. My guest today is a trauma-informed self-love coach, author, speaker, podcast host, and the founder of 4F Media. For years, she has been helping men, women, and organizations emerge with clear visions of their value, take ownership of their choices, and chart a path to their promise, becoming victorious souls who embrace the change from survive to thrive. Through the power of the love of God, her first book, Emerging with Wings, starting, uh, excuse me, started it all, and now Danielle Burnick is here with me today to talk about it. Danielle, how are you? I'm, I'm glad I'm here. I'm really excited to be here today. It's been a little rough this week, emotionally and mentally. So I'm like, what better podcast to be on than one about mental health? Absolutely. <laughs> um, this is second time around because uh, you know technical issues make it make it hard to have an sure. online podcast. But here we are. We made it. We're, we're here. We're together. I would, you know, I would love to hear your story and kind of learn a little bit about how did you get to be here? And then we'll start talking about this week and, you know, what's going on and how, uh, how you manage emotions and how you regulate yourself. Um, but let's start with your story, if you don't mind, Danielle. Sure. I'm a trauma-informed self-love coach because I'm a childhood trauma survivor. It's multiple childhood traumas that I didn't realize were trauma. They were just growing up. And a lot of people are like that, which is part of why I do what I do. Right. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It was fine. My childhood was fine. And, and it wasn't fine. <laughs> you know, and you have all the side effects in your life, which I had. I was an emotional basket case. I got involved in drugs and all kinds of things to just try and get rid of all the pain because I was just so messed up inside. And I just did a keynote speak speech this last weekend. And to prepare for it, I felt inclined to reread my book, my first book, Emerging with Wings. It started it all. So that's really fresh in my mind. And I'm refreshed in just how messed up I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know, and you remember in that, but when you go back and you revisit it a little bit, I just went, wow wow, I am so, so different than I was. I suffered a thing called childhood emotional neglect. A lot of people don't know what that is. And what that is, is every child has emotional needs. Uh, when I was growing up, nobody thought of that. Now we know about this. <laughs> but every child is different too. You know, some are very stoic and strong and independent. And some are very sensitive. Some are quiet. Some are very outgoing and all different. They have different needs. Well, Childhood emotional neglect is when a child does not get whatever they needed. So they needed something in a certain situation or consistently. Uh, there's a book that I read that helped me frame that. I talk about it all the time called Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb. And she unpacks that in a way that you can really look at your life to see, does that apply to me? And she has 12 different parenting styles that this takes place under like different ways of looking at it. And my upbringing fell into three of those. And one of them is well-meaning parents who were emotionally neglected themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, how I like to explain that is they didn't have to give what I needed. 
It's like, I need an apple. Well, I don't have any apples. <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's that simple to explain, but a child doesn't know if they don't get their emotional needs met because they don't know what their emotional needs are. Right. You just, you grow up and you have the side effects of these things and you don't know why. You just think it's all your fault and there's just something horribly wrong with you and you suffer. But on top of that, that was really, that paved the way to make the traumas that I went through, the circumstances I went through actually traumatized me because I had that weak uh, foundation. Yeah. I felt that I was not loved. I felt that I was not wanted. I was a accident is what I was told. And I felt that way. I felt that I was an accident. But then I suffered different traumas at, at school starting in first grade. I was shamed in front of my class by my teacher. And in sixth grade, I had a, a, another public shaming. I was met with a mob. I went through bullying and other things like that. I also suffered at the hands of a neighborhood bully who used my name against me. And that was a really deep trauma. But I also went through a trauma that happened at church where I was publicly rejected in front of the entire church as a child. And then there were multiple deaths that took place in my life growing up also, one of which, which I briefly mentioned in the before we went into the recording here, that I was lied about when I was told about it. Uh, my brother uh, died and he accidentally killed himself, <laughs> but I was told he was murdered is how they told me. And all of these piled up. I... One of the deaths was my dad. And so my mom was a single mom and she lost her, her mom and two months later lost her husband. I lost my grandma and two months later lost my dad. And then four years later, I lost my oldest brother and she lost her firstborn son. And then I had a friend that died in there also in high school. And after my dad died, our, our family just really imploded because we had no help because of what had taken place. I'd already had the, the name trauma. I'd already had the church trauma. And so I was, I was just a mess. And then when my, my dad died, I was, I was just, I was done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like done. I, I'm just like all done. And uh, whatever I could do to get rid of that pain in whatever way I could find, which was amazing that I did so well in school. In spite of that, I graduated high school. I went through a co-op and graduated from cosmetology. I was in the National Honor Society. I had no idea how I got into it because I didn't do anything to get into it <laughs> on purpose, intentionally. And so that's really interesting that all that took place while I was so silently trying to hurt myself because I blamed myself for all of my problems. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was in so much pain. I didn't know what to do with it. And one of the things I've learned since I've been doing what I'm doing, which will feed into talking about this week in that, mm -hmm. is nurture mitigates trauma. And for those who don't know what mitigate means, it it lessens it. And in some cases, it can cause it to not cause trauma. You can still go through a terrible thing because you hear stories, you know, two people went through the same thing. This one's fine. And this one's a complete mess. And that's where I always want people to know that trauma is not your fault. If you're traumatized, it is a 
physical reaction to something that happened to you that you were incapable of dealing with. There's no shame in it. There's no condemnation in it. And it's a wound. It's, it's not something you did wrong. And people suffer shame all the time with trauma because they blame themselves. I should have been stronger. I shouldn't have been there. And all the shoulda, 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 and they should all over themselves. And which just adds to the shame. And it's a great it does way to not say help. <laughs> they should all over themselves. Yeah, they should all over themselves. And then they are a big pile of mess. So that's kind of like the short story. It sounded kind of long, but the short story. And well, I wrote my, my first book, Emerging with Wings, like I said. It's uh, written like a love story, kind of. It has a hero, a villain, and then the person going through the trouble and then emerging free. Uh, the wings represent freedom is what they represent, emerging with wings. It's coming out of all that trauma. So it takes you on the journey so that you could, you know, work with it and even help yourself. And that's why I'm here is because of the response I got to that book. When I first started that book, I just started kind of like a sentimental journey getting into it. And I thought I could maybe help some people. But then the change that took place in me Mm -hmm. while I was writing it, because I put myself in counseling to do that. And I learned the second half of the book. I didn't know the second eight chapters when I sat down to write the book. I learned those while writing and in counseling. Things came yeah. to light that I had no idea were there. <laughs> yeah. And it resonated with people. There's a quote in there that's gone viral, been translated in all different languages. People use it in their presentation, PowerPoints and stuff. And I was floored. I sent copies of my book to different people who had played a part in my life because, you know, I was wanted to share that and I wanted them to know how much they mattered to me. You know, they had helped me. So I wanted them to hear that, get this, or they were doing something along the, the way of helping people with trauma, children with trauma. And one uh, gentleman is Pastor Kent Clark. Not Clark Kent. I always want to say it backwards. <laughs> Kent Clark who is the CEO of Grace Centers for Hope, which is a homeless shelter. And also they have a women and children's thing and they do a whole lot of amazing things. It's a great organization. But because of what they were doing, I sent him a copy of my book. And I don't know, not too long. I don't know how long afterwards, I got an envelope back that was the same size and the same feel as the envelope I sent him. And my fear was that he sent me my book back. <laughs> I'm like, wow. So I, because what I'd been through growing to write that book, I was able to collect myself before I opened it, collected myself and, and told myself, okay, if he sent you your own book back, you're going to be okay. <laughs> I like did that before I opened it because I was afraid. And if, if you can do that, if you can like grab a hold of yourself before you respond to something, it can really, you can help mitigate your own, your own stress response. But I opened it and it wasn't my book, thank God. <laughs> but he had sent me a copy of his book. He had written a book and he invited me to come down there and he'd give me a tour of their place, their facility and stuff. And uh I did go down there and come to find out he had been preaching at his church out of my book. I was just, and I was meeting people in the hallway and they were saying, that's that lady with the book. That's that lady with the book. That's that lady with the book. And I was like, really had no idea 
that what I had been through was that big of a deal. I had no idea that what I had been through would impact that many people, that people would care, and that I was not as alone as I felt that I had been. And so after that, I'm like, I, I should probably do something like marketing or something. Because <laughs> I did. I wrote, I wrote the book myself. I self-published it on purpose because I didn't want to sell it to a publisher because then they would own my story and I could never change it. At least that's the way it was back when I wrote my book back and sat down to write it, began it in 2012, published it in 2014. But I republished it. I got endorsements on it. And um, so then I started putting it out there and, you know, just getting more and, and little by little. But when I went to that funny story, when I went to um, get that tour, um, I met his wife who headed up, you know, like the ladies ministry thing there. And so she, <laughs> she invited me to come and, you know, talk to her ladies, you know, that there and to share my story. And, and I started backing up physically and said, no. <laughs> and uh, oh, I beat myself up for that for so long after that, too, because I'm like, what's wrong with you? You wrote this book. Yeah. You emerged with wings, didn't you? Or you're all free. What's your problem? Why don't you do this? And uh, I learned since then that I just wasn't ready as a simple answer. I wasn't ready yet. I had learned the second half of that book and I had published it without finishing processing all those things. And I learned the story of the butterfly, which is actually in my newest book, Because You Matter. I opened that up with that story of the butterfly because I was under the impression that when a butterfly comes out of its cocoon or chrysalis, it just flies away. And so I had that same expectation from myself. I emerged with wings, just fly away. You should just start doing all the things, right? No. And for, you know, you shake your head like, you know yeah. that a butterfly has to do something else. Well, a lot of people were like me. They thought, man, the butterfly flies away. It has to go through a whole new process. Yeah. It has to have enough space around it. It has to hang upside down. It has to flap its wings and it has to, it has wing muscles. I never knew a butterfly had wing muscles. And it has to pump the blood into its wings so that it can make the wings firm. Mm -hmm. And it also has to release meconium, which means it has to take a poop. And so I applied that to myself. I needed to have enough space to deal with the things I've been through. I needed to hang upside down in a sense. I needed to look at my life from a different perspective. I needed to, you know, strengthen my wings by practicing the new freedoms and the new points of view that I had learned while I was writing that book. And I had to, you know, pump the thing, the blood into my body. I had to pump all these new things into me to firm up my beliefs. I had digested my childhood i had digested my beliefs they call it deconstruction now um and so i needed to like re-put those back together again what, what do i really believe and make sure that's what i believe and then I, my, my favorite part is is last part is like and i had to get rid of some crap in my life <laughs> so it's like i had to do that and after i i did that then little by little i have gotten to where I am today, just kind of one step at a time and little by little, but I've, I've come a really long way from, no, I'm not going to talk to your ladies that I've been there a few times speaking. I do keynote speaking and 
Um, I'm speaking at a conference last week and again, this next weekend coming up. So it's incredible. It's incredible. And I, I, I want to go back to a point that you made um, and, and discuss it a little bit further because I, I, I really love it. Um, the idea that nurturing mitigates trauma because it's it's scientifically true. Um, it's very much something that's been proven over the, you know, certainly the past couple couple of years and decade, I would say. Um, but what is that, what does it mean to you to nurture? And especially what does it mean to you when you talk about self? Cause, cause I think, you know, it's easy to look at, um, when someone else has trauma, it's easy to look at us and say, we should nurture that person back to a point. But I think what gets lost and is often misunderstood is how do you nurture self, right? You're, you're a self-love coach. So mm -hmm. how do you approach that question? Well, that's kind of a complicated question because I see it in multiple places like stained glass. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because with childhood trauma, they need someone to nurture them. Mm -hmm. They need someone to teach them to nurture themselves, how to self-soothe. You know, like when a baby needs to learn how to you know, calm themselves down. And they do that by skin to skin with a parent. Right. And when a child grows up and doesn't have that, my counselor helped me with the term mirroring, like looking at a baby and they see the emotions on your face. And so they learn how to respond by looking at you. That's why some people are very concerned with babies that were born during the pandemic with all the masks, because it would affect that mirroring thing yeah. going on in their life. And um, so that's one of the things is children need someone else to help them and to teach them how to self-soothe, how to, you know, nurture themselves. Like my watching my children teach my grandchildren, sometimes it brings me to tears. And I tell them this because they do such an amazing job. I'm, they're not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, even ones who have emotionally neglected their kids because I've apologized to my kids wherever I've messed up. Let me know that we'll work our way through it. <laughs> yeah. But with an adult, they, they need to nurture themselves. Also, it's not the responsibility of another person to nurture another adult. It really is your own self that you need to find a way to become nurtured, yeah. you know, and that's through many things through self care, but also by, having proper relationships. You're in relationships that are nurturing because you have chosen these relationships and you have boundaries in them. You work through things with them. And, you know, if you're a person of faith, then that's also another aspect of nurturing you and knowing what you believe, you know, that that's being nurturing to yourself, knowing what you believe, you know? And so Self is, that is how you do that. That's my process on my website is self that I do with my clients in that S-E-L-F. So it's interesting that you brought that up with the self because like I said, the adults, they need to nurture themselves and it's, they add around them people to augment that, mm -hmm. but they really are the responsible one, but the adults need to be the ones to train the children how, like my, my kids do with my grandkids they'll have them stop and take a deep breath. Like something's happening, stop and take a breath. And I have watched them, my grandkids do that by themselves. They have learned, like they catch themselves getting really upset. 
and stuff like that. So it's like they need to train the children how to do that. See, that mitigates that. That teaches them resilience also. If you train a child to have resilience, then when something, when a trauma exposure comes, I mean, they go through a situation that could potentially cause trauma, they might be able to handle that mm -hmm. or they might be able to handle it much better than if they hadn't had that. You know, so the mitigate can make it less just by the simple training. So. Well, trauma is a, an inevitability, I think, in life. And, and so when you, when you talk about exposure, it's going to happen, right? Like it's going to happen to kids. It's going to happen to adults. It's going to happen to elderly. It's going to happen to every, every person on the planet at some point, right? Unless somehow you put that person in a bubble and even that can become traumatizing in its own way. <laughs> Right. Um, well, it's, it's the whole thing with trauma is something that you can't deal with. So right. someone that I interviewed my book, Because You Matter, I in, interviewed 10 different people to share their stories of their trauma and overcoming some childhood, some adult. And one of gentlemen is a trauma coach mm -hmm. and he has been on trauma teams. He was in the service also. And he, like he goes to hurricanes and places like that to do trauma care. I mm -hmm. mean, that's what he does. He's professional. He's got the letters after his name and all that stuff <laughs> but still he found himself with ptsd and he went to a special school and stuff when he was a teenager which built so much resilience in him that it was really amazing and if he hadn't been trained in the, all the things that he does he wouldn't have recognized that when he developed ptsd and it's because he had lost a, his brother um, in a fire yeah. And then he was in another situation with the fire and it kept coming back. And so he was able to address it. So he was able to like catch himself and deal with it as it was starting to come. And see, that's the closest thing to not being traumatized, I see. Because <laughs> yeah. he was like so well-trained and he knew how, but see, like you said, everybody goes through stuff. Some people go through a whole lot more than other people and, you know, Life dishes out stuff for people that isn't always good. Right. And I, I think, you know, you can go through trauma and not, not retain something along the lines of PTSD. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a, that's a really important kind of demarcation to, to understand is that what PTSD is unprocessed trauma. And what that means is, you know, you talked about nurturing. Mm -hmm. There, there very much needs to be a way to process through the things that you go through. Yes. Um, there, there needs to be a. That's what the trauma is, is the unprocessed. Right. And if it, if it's stuck in there, you have to do something with it. Right. Or it will stay there forever. Right. And so you, there, there, in the beginning, there needs to be a self-focused idea of how do I nurture myself? How do I, mm -hmm. uh, regulate myself? How do I solve this internal issue? Then there also needs to be relationships in which are healthy enough to help you express yourself because I think mm -hmm. expression is also a very incredibly important uh, value to, to recognize when we're talking about trauma and, and especially PTSD uh, because the, the longer it goes without processing, the more damage it does in mm -hmm. my opinion um, and not necessarily internal physical damage, although that is a remarkable uh, discovery that I think uh, Gavar Mate yes. is really, you know, digging into. But I think 
interaction wise, uh, social, social life wise, like you, you tend to make decisions based on how your trauma, um, how it's how your unprocessed trauma has actually impacted you and affected you. Um, right. And so you're, you can become quite self destructive to a point of isolation, manipulation, control, all sorts of different things, all, all the bad words, shaming, guilting, <laughs> um, all the words that we don't like to hear as, as coaches. Um, you know, all of that can can become very pronounced when it comes to trauma. And it's, it's remarkably important to surround yourself with good people, but also remarkably important to make yourself a person that you can look to and say, you're going to be okay. And to be able to nurture yourself is a, a very profound skill um, mm -hmm. and one that should be remarkably practiced. Now, I'm curious, uh, Danielle, with, with your work, you know, because obviously kids need nurturing. How do you deal with and how do you work with adults who never had that, who never had that, uh, that nurturing and have ended up with things like PTSD or CPTSD, where they are functionally unable to self-regulate. How do you work with those people? And, and, and what are the things that you think have, have benefited them the most? Uh, well, to make a distinction here, I am a coach and not a counselor. Sure. So if someone comes to me and they need a counselor, that's what they get sent to because I cannot do things that a counselor can do. They may need to dive much deeper if they cannot regulate themselves. They probably need a counselor if they're they have like things they keep tripping them up and they can't move forward. That's where I can help them to recognize they need to see like my process self is see, expose, love and free. And C is for awareness. You have to see what you're doing or see what you're not doing or see where your problem is or see what's happening in your life before you can do anything about it. Mm -hmm. You have to see that there is trauma. You have to call it what it is. But then the E is exposed is you have to find out why. Well, you keep doing this. Why do you keep doing this? Or you keep behaving this way. Why? Or you keep saying that, or you're always going in a relate this kind of relationship or whatever the repetitive, whatever the thing is that you're tripping up over, there's a reason. It's like, I have a seven day challenge to love yourself. And one of the big premises of that is there's a reason why people don't love themselves. Babies are born loving themselves. They are the center of the universe to themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to learn to not care about themselves. That's a learned thing. There is a reason. So a person who does not love themselves, there is a reason and you have to get to the reason why, or you will never solve the problem. And then the L is for love. You have to lavish love on yourself. You have to start to learn how to love yourself. I'm a person of faith, so I, I talk about the love of God. So I share the love of God with people and how they are loved by God all the time. It's unconditional. And so, and the love part is so important because love is what gives us courage. Love is what gives us courage to do what we're afraid to do, which is to do something, <laughs> to do anything, to go to counseling, to, to do a new thing that you need to do, to read this affirmation every day or whatever fill in the blank is. 
the L for love is what gives you the courage to do that. It, it gives you the, the persistence to continue because you, you start caring about yourself. And then F is for free. That's the action step. That's the do just one thing at a time. That's why it's a cycle. You go through it over and over again. You do just one thing and then you have to go through the cycle again. You know, did that work? Did it not work? Why did it work? Why did it not work? And things like that. So, and also you do one thing until it's not a thing anymore. And then it becomes a part of you. And then you can do one thing because everybody can do one thing. Everyone wants to do 27 things, but if you try to do 27 things, you do nothing. I, I had a, a client the other day. Um, she mentioned to me, she's like, I feel like I have six different puzzles that I just dumped into one pile and I'm trying to figure out how to put puzzle pieces in each, each of the right puzzles, but I have no idea what, what pieces are which. Um, and I, and I very much feel like that is, that is such a good analogy for PTSD and, and CPTSD and, and going through trauma that has been left unprocessed because you, you find yourself knowing that you need as an adult, you know that you need to do things, but you don't know how to prioritize simple things um, because it was never simple to you. Right. Especially when it, when it starts young, right? Like when it's, when it's childhood, uh, it was never simple for you. It was never, you know, for me, I, I look back at, at, at my life and understand like losing my dad at six years old. I looked at that and I said, nothing will ever be simple for me again. Mm -hmm. I, I remember saying that at, at six years old, but at six years old, you've never, you haven't developed logical functioning in your brain yet. Right. It just, it doesn't develop until you know, somewhere between six and 10, six and 12, uh, depending on where you look. And so I developed an interactional process within my mind before I ever developed logic. And that became a foundation for me. And you kind of mentioned this yourself is like you built this foundation that had no bound. It was not bounded within logic and rationality. It was mm -hmm. bounded within whatever the fuck happened to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm bounded in fear and lies. Right. And, and mm -hmm. mine was bounded in grief. And, you know, from, from that point on, you know, I, I continue to live out that, that kind of scenario of like, I overthink everything. I'm okay with it. Right. I've, I've allowed myself to kind of create a, a natural compassion and, and appreciation for it, mm -hmm. but that's still a leftover kind of, uh, symptom and uh, I don't even know what to call it, a, a leftover piece. A side effect. Of, right, side effect of, <laughs> of, my, of my grief in, within childhood that I didn't know how to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. Where now I have a profound capacity to overthink things and understand things that are well beyond the scope of what some people would look at. Um, and is that good? In some ways, I've used to channel it for good, but if you don't learn to be intentional with it and learn how to like, where does it come from and how do you actually apply it? How do you right. use it? How do you use it for good? It becomes profoundly bad for most people. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the challenge that I, I think I've seen is that people really need to find a way to say, I've been 
traumatized. I've been hurt. I've been through pain. I've been through suffering. I've been through all of this. Now I need to capture what I have left, really analyze it, look through, you know, look through the stained glass of, of how I see this and dismantle the, the darkened pieces of the, of that glass and push everything together that I can actually see through. And, yeah. and benefit from and create benefit for the world. I, I think so many people get locked into this idea that because I've been hurt, I am useless. And it's a learned helplessness that uh, is, you know, profoundly challenging because you don't, you, I, any person can look at each other and be like, you're not useless, right? If you have a fucking mouth and a brain, you're not useless, right? Because there's, there's people that walk on stage it's funny I say walk because they don't walk. Right? I've seen quadriplegics on stage that the only thing that they have use of is their mouth and their brain, mm-hmm. and they, they benefit society. Yeah, um, people need to know they matter. That's right. why my one book is Because You Matter. And, and one of the profound wounds of trauma is the loss of identity and value. Right. I mean it just strips you of that and you're left with just this aching hole and then shame hops on top of that. And it's, it's just, it's really awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and to go with values or to, to go with value, I also kind of lump in values themselves, right. Of this, this ability to not only see value within yourself, but then to also characterize your interaction through the lens of values. Like, because I have no value, I place no value on how I interact with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I see so often people kind of negate their own uh, success by just saying, you know, I, rather than have consistency as a value, I'm going to be inconsistent. I know what the right thing is here, but I'm not going to do that because I have no value to this person. So why do it? Right. There's, there's no sense of this is what the right answer is. And I should do that. And, and then I can see where that can take me, um, where, you know, there's, there's chaos and, and sometimes irrationality and illogical decisions. Um, and I, I, I find one of the, the best practices that I've, I've ever kind of used in, in this kind of, in these situations where people are trying to kind of overcome their, their lack of value is actually to create a sense of defining value of how they present their interactions to the world. Right. I'm going to look at empathy as my value, right. I'm going to give empathy and also receive it. Right. And, And so having this interplay of like, the first things first, they're always really good at giving empathy, mm-hmm. but they're really bad at taking it, right? Mm-hmm. Really bad, profoundly bad at taking it. And so I'm like, how can you call yourself an empathetic person if you only give it mm-hmm. and you don't give it to yourself, mm-hmm. right? Is that a fair assumption to say, I'm an empathetic person to everyone else, but not to myself? So you, are you really an empathetic person? Well, now you have, you, now you recognize I have to be my value, right? And then, and then they start looking at it and saying, okay, you got me. I've got to start actually 
providing some empathy to myself enough to be able to say I'm an empathetic person. Because well, people tend to see the value in other people and not themselves. Yeah. And so I focus on they have to see that they have value. I say people have greatness inside them, God-given greatness. Like I believe everyone is born with inherent value. That's a value that you don't work for. You don't have to try and drum up. It's just something because you're breathing here on the planet. And then I try to help people discover, you know, what is theirs for them to discover it? It doesn't have to be some big, huge thing like, you know, they're going to be president or, you know, write a gazillion books or then people tend to jump to that kind of an extreme mm -hmm. instead of, like you said, being an empathetic person. You know how powerful it is to actually be an empathetic person in other people's lives. That is greatness for someone to give that. Yeah. So I, I try and help people to see that your greatness doesn't have to be great by the society's measure of like fame and fortune and things like that. It's just something that's gifted inside of you that no one else has. Yeah. Only you have that. Yeah. Cause you have, I, I always look at it as you have a story that is uniquely yours. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, you know, I, as, as much as I used to look at life and say, no one else can understand me. I, I, I was right and I was wrong, both all at the same time. I, I look at that now and I say, well, you're right. No one can understand what it was like to go through my story individually in the order that I went through. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean people don't have the capacity to understand the emotions that I went through because we all mm -hmm. feel the same emotions. We may not define them the same way, mm -hmm. but if, if someone uses compassion for the word empathy or love for the word empathy mm -hmm. well, now we just that's semantics we have to just find the right definitions and then we can actually understand each yeah. other's feelings mm -hmm. and so when i started to look at it that way i started to be able to understand i could actually express myself and show people how to understand my story rather than always assume no one could understand my story and so like, to me, expression has become so valuable that it's built this podcast, right? This podcast is 100% for me. It's not for my, it's not for my followers as much as I give it to my followers. It's for me. It's my ability to sit here and express myself to someone I've never met more often than not. Um, I've met some people here before, but it, for the most part, I talk about very deep and, and intrinsic topics about myself, about other people. Um, and I talk about what I think, what I feel, um, what I understand or what I don't understand. And that has always been a challenge for me. And so this has undeniably been a, a massive part of me overcoming the things that I've been through. Um, and even the things that I'm currently going through, right? I, I, I go through things every day. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, there was a, I, I made a podcast episode last year. Um, yeah, it was last year that I, I lost my grandpa. I lost my, uh, one of my soldiers, uh, and I lost three, three unborn babies that were incredibly hard. Um, and I made so a podcast sorry. episode about that. Uh, and, and it was, it was something that was necessary for me to express and expose 
or it would have been a profoundly difficult experience of isolation. Mm-hmm. And this, this was my place of expression. Um, and I could give two shits what people think about it. You know, like, <laughs> like I, I respect what people have to say. I always will. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to me being able to express myself there, I think everyone needs a place where they can do it, where they can express themselves the way that they need to and want to, even mm-hmm. if it's dark and difficult, that they can just do it and not look at the response, right? It's, that's kind of the nice thing about this podcast is I don't have like, I don't go look at my comments or my reviews or anything like that. I, I, I don't give a shit, right? And as much as I love the people that listen to this, I, I don't want it. I don't want the reviews. I don't want the, the, the thoughts or the, 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 you know, the comments or anything like that. Are they good? Maybe. Are they bad? Maybe. I don't know. Um, because I don't do this to, you know, necessarily change the world. I do a lot of things to change the world. This is to change me. And, and that's the benefit of this is um, I hope people look at that and recognize there, there needs to be a time and a place for you to say, I don't give a shit about what anybody says. I need to share this. And learning to do that, whether that's therapy, a self-love coach, uh, a mental health coach, doesn't matter where, a friend, a podcast, I don't care. <laughs> but to find a place for that is a profoundly important like skill. It's a necessity in in many ways because you need to be able to express yourself, to share what you need to share, um, because it's a way of practicing setting boundaries and holding holding yourself accountable. Um, and if you don't do it, I mean, we you and I both know where that leads, and it's yeah. not good, right? It's yeah. not it's not the conclusion of our books where we are successful, happy, peaceful human beings who are comfortable with our lives, it's, we're, we're probably dead because we ended our life just like my father did. Um, and so I, I just want people, I, I just went on a tangent and I want to give you a chance to talk, but I, I, I wanted to kind of give that to people to help them understand kind of where I use my perspective to where I place benefit from all this of, of everything that I do. This podcast is legitimately for me. And I say it all the time, but if anybody missed it, I just said it again. (laughs) We repeat what's important to us and and that's good. That's good. Um, I had a question I was thinking about. You were talking about when you were six and your dad um, took his life. Did you have any nurture and support around you growing up? Did you have any help after that time? I did but I didn't accept it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I've heard that before. That's awfully young to not accept it. (laughs) Yeah. My, my mom and my sister were both, were both people that were there for me, but um, the circumstances of, of my father uh, kind of led me to believe it was my fault. Ah. Um, And so I, that's a big, that's a big thing. I, 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 (laughs) I saw him the morning he, he ended his life uh, and I felt very deeply that he was not going to come home. Uh, 
very intuitively and I, and I, I said, don't leave. Right. I, I ran up to him. I remember grabbing his leg and I said, don't leave. You know, I'm yelling, don't leave. Cause I'm a six year old and I'm crying. Um, and I just felt in every, every cell of my body that he was not coming home. Um, and so when I knew he didn't come home the next morning, when my, when my mom told me we we're going to my grandma's house, um, I, I did what I thought was logical at the time. And I blame myself. Um, obviously well, that was like not you right. said, Dr. Gabor Mate, you brought him up. He explains why children do that because that's yeah. what children do. Absolutely. Cause it's, we haven't created an, an, a, a rational way around fault and blame at that age. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a rational way of thinking about who is to blame. And, and it's really not even about blame. I think blaming and, and faults are both really interesting topics, but topics that are so complicated right. that we can't <laughs> simplify it to it's your fault or it's my fault. Uh, well, Dr. Bormate, the word he uses is the word villain. He uses right. the word villain. When a child goes through trauma, they blame themselves because generally the trauma involves someone they know and love and need. Mm -hmm. And so they can't turn that person into a villain. Right. I mean, even if they're physically abusing them and molesting them, all horrible things, torturing, whatever they're doing, they cannot do that because they, in their child mind, need that person. Yep. And so that person gets off in the kid's mind as, you know, they're, they're wonderful or whatever. Right. And so they villainize themselves because someone has to be the villain. Yep. So they villainize themselves. That's how he made it that simple. And once I heard him explain it, because have you, you've seen his movie, The Wisdom of Trauma? I haven't actually. I didn't know. He oh, had a movie. you should watch that movie. It is. It's wow. Yep. I, I've told lots of people about it. It's a very excellent, excellent movie by him. Yes. I got to write that down because I, uh, I, I love uh, when the body says no. And I, I think what the body he is, keeps the score is a good book too. I, absolutely. That's Bessel van der Kolk for sure. Um, both of those books. And I also think he, uh, waking the tiger by Peter Levine. I think those, I think right now, those are the, the, the Holy Trinity of, of, of trauma um, of people who understand trauma is Bessel van der Kolk, Gabor Mate, and then Peter, Peter Levine. Mm -hmm. Um, all in their own way. I, I don't think any any one of them is is right necessarily. I just think that they're having the discussions that matter right now, and they're very helpful. Absolutely, uh, oh. and and really opening the. I think opening the kind of causeway to helping like medical the medical field actually start to recognize that it's more than just a physical. Uh, a physical ailment in some cases and that treating the psychological ailment as well as the physical ailment is actually something that can, that can heal the human body. Uh -huh. um, that I think is remarkable. And, and I think we need to really pay attention to that more and more. Um, will we, that's up to, you know, that's up to the next generation of medical practitioners. I think we, I think we will, but um it's almost as if we regressed for a while because I feel like, you know, the tribal shaman actually understood that in some way. And then throughout history, science kind of overtook 
uh, in a way that we regressed into this capacity to not understand human emotion. And now we're actually regaining uh, some enlightened view of wow, people feel things in and a science. Okay. And, and now we have science that that proves that feeling things is that can actually be healing or it can be destructive, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what you're feeling. Um, which I always find really interesting that now in 2022, we're actually uh, approaching that that conversation. Uh, I just always think that's really interesting. Yeah, I asked you about that because we were talking about mitigating trauma Mm -hmm. and the nurture in that. So I was just curious of, you know, hearing your story and, you know, in my growing up, I did not get any support of any kind. That's part of my story as well. I had a very small family. There was my mom, my dad, my two brothers and me. I had one grandma and a step grandpa. Mm-hmm. That was our whole family. No, my dad had a brother and they had one kid and he was in, they were involved in our family and then they were suddenly gone. So I have one cousin. Some people, they got all these cousins. I have one cousin yeah. that I, I don't know where he is or anything. Um, but then I lost my grandma and I lost my dad and my step grandpa was not helpful. And we, because of the trauma that I endured at church, we had no support system in the faith community, you know, the neighbors all came out and brought food, you know, the first week, like they always do, people go to the funeral, but then as soon as the funeral's over, everybody's gone. Yeah. And my family imploded. We had no skills, no counseling, no grief help, nothing. And it wasn't until after my mother passed, she um, had pancreatic cancer and did a valiant fight and uh, she and I built rebuilt our relationship. That's part of my story also. I've written about it a couple of times on my blog also, because like I said, our family imploded. So none of us got along with any of us. We were just yeah. all self-destructing. But she came to a point after I was married and asked if I wanted to be friends. And we sat down and started working out through our issues together at... <clears throat> When she got sick, I was just so thankful that we had done that. And I got to walk through that part of her life with her. I got to be with her when she passed. But after she passed, because she had cancer, um, and then she got put into hospice care, which was like just the last two days or something, last day. But we had talked to them at the hospital, so we had contact with them. So, But after she passed, hospice had a whole support system they had grief recovery stuff and it was like almost like heard the angels singing with help there of you know what tears are that there i learned that there's an enzyme in tears that when you cry different kinds of tears you release different kinds of enzymes so when you cry when someone dies and you're in grief you're actually releasing something that's toxic to your body to heal yourself and I learned science things. I learned emotion things. I learned about a thing called grief work and how to take what's inside of you and get it outside of you so that you could not have it being toxic. And I just, that helped me so much that I developed my own course for that and have taught that myself. It's like, because we need that recovery. Yeah. We need to go through that. If 
And I didn't have any of that. And that just maximized the trauma in my life. And my grandson, one of my grandsons right now is, um, he's fighting leukemia. And that's part of what's been going on this week. And uh, he was diagnosed in March this year. And uh, go through times where it's a little bit easier and a little bit harder. But, you know, this week's been a little bit harder. And I just am so proud of my daughter and our, our, our family just surrounding and being there for him. Yeah, you know, when he's been in the hospital, he's never been without someone there with him at the hospital. He's 14. He was 13. It was the month before his 14th birthday. And great kid. And uh, his prognosis is good. It's a really long journey. Uh, two years still from this past July that he'll be going through varying kinds of chemotherapy. I had no idea there were different kinds of leukemia. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you don't really know until you go through stuff. Yeah. You know, people can tell you about it, but that's part of why this week has been difficult for me specifically, just because yeah, it's, it's my grandson. So I'm not his mom. So that's a different kind of relationship. But then I also, you feel for, I'm, I, your daughter. I, my daughter. Yes. And so I'm feeling for my daughter and I'm feeling for my grandson. And then I'm feeling for my granddaughter, which is his sister. Cause they're really, really close. Right. You know, and then there's, you know, all the other people and all the different aspects. I was doing a interview for my podcast with a lady who uh, had been through a uh, crisis and loss with her husband and talking about support and how, some people don't know how to help and some people don't help. And it's interesting who shows up and who doesn't show up and stuff like that. So I just I really celebrate all the nurture that we are being able to do with my grandson. And, you know, will it be enough? You know, we'll find out when he grows up. We're all doing the best we can. And that's all we can all do is doing the best that we can. And that we're always there for him. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I have the things you talked about regulating myself. I one of the things I do is I have a, a emotional uh, my emotional life journal. It's a thirty day journal that I go through over and over again, and it has just five little questions just to kind of just locate myself every day emotionally. And I actually didn't do that this morning, so I probably that's a little telling of why maybe today was a little bit more difficult because I. I neglected to do that this morning. And actually, as we're recording this, October is Emotional Wellness Month. But we should pay attention to our emotional wellness more than just in October. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. It's, man, it's so relatable. Um, I, when I first started dating my wife, we were about a year into our relationship when I first met uh, her cousin named Eric. Uh, be it's be interesting um we lost eric i think less than a less than a couple months after i met him i think i met him at christmas uh and on my birthday february 9th i remember remember the call 
uh, from my from my wife saying he's in the hospital. Um, it's not looking good. Um, he had he had basically declined within within two months. Um, but the the thing that really got me uh, with Eric was, uh, and this is actually in when the body says no is is where I really recognize this. Um, Eric didn't have anybody that had talked about death with him. And I was, you know, <laughs> at the time I had been in the military for 10 years, I'd been deployed once, I had almost killed myself at that point. Um, and so it was very, you know, death was a pretty prominent uh, thing that I understood really well. Um, and I, I had asked him after after we met on Christmas, a couple of days later, he, he contacted me and I um, I remember messaging him on Facebook Messenger and, and, and just saying, you know, or just asking the question of like, are you, are you ready for it? What is it? What does it feel like? Um, 29 years old. I, I don't even remember how long he had been fighting it, but I know he had it when he was a kid. Um, so I would assume at least about two decades, uh, no one had ever asked him anything about it. You know, and that's what's what's hard for me is that that was a I'm I'm pretty sure was one of the moments that helped him finally pass. Uh, and that's hard because you know you you take that. And there's, there's two directions you can take it. Like one, you can, you can go in the direction of, I helped him go. And so many people suffered because of it. And then at the same time, you can look at it and you can say, I helped him go in a way that he was ready for. Because he was, he was ready. <clears throat> But it's remarkably hard to kind of look at that and realize that when you go through something like leukemia, so often people fight for everybody else but themselves. And it's, it's a hard, it's an incredibly hard battle to face. And the nurturing is, is so vital. It's so important, but some sometimes we don't know when to let go we don't we don't know how to say if you're ready let go uh and that's you know there's i i i hope i hope he he makes it as far as he can um and you get as much time as you can with him because that's it's so hard to to be put in that situation to say, are you ready for it? And to hear the answer that you undeniably don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of when my mom was fighting. She had pancreatic cancer. They gave her three to six months. And uh, being a person of faith, she cried out to God for, she wanted one more of every holiday. 
one more of every holiday. She lived 14 months. 14. Blew them all away. But I still remember in the hospital, she was in the hospital for her, on her birthday. And she told me and my brother, she said, I'm tired. And we said to her, mom, are, are you want to stop fighting? She said, I do. And we said, okay, mom. Because it's her life. Yeah. And that was, that was really, really hard to do. But we both did it. And I know stories of other people when I had another family member that was sick with something else. And she was in assisted living and at hospice involved. And the hospice nurse was telling us a story of this other person who, you know, they kept, they were going to die. They were going to die, going to die. And, you know, and the, the family members were there. They wanted to be there for them. And, uh, she said, it's remarkable. Sometimes you, you can just tell the people want the people to leave and they want to die by themselves. And some people, they don't, they want someone there with them. And in this particular case, as soon as they went to lunch, you know, the person passed and it was my prayer to be with my mom. And what my brother and I did was um, she wanted to come home and say goodbye to her house. So she came home in an ambulance and had a hospital bed. She spent one night in her house and my brother was there with her. And uh, she kept trying to get out of bed and kept you know, calling for Jesus. <laughs> and uh, my brother would talk to her and then the next day we had her come to my house because she was gonna stay at my house, you know, for as long that was going to be. We let her go say goodbye to her house because that's what she wanted. And she came to my house and the EMS people are, were surprised that we were moving her or whatever because apparently she had what they call a death rattle. I didn't know what that was. But uh, she only spent one night in my house. She was at my house. I still remember, you know, helping her get up and, you know, she had a shower and, you know, she was in bed and I remember standing at the head of her bed um, that night. I put my hands on her and said, God, keep her till morning. And um, he did. I got up in the morning and she had fallen on the floor and I, I got her up, called hospice. And uh, they came and it was going to be right then. And I was sitting right there with her. But I have no regret. And that's something that is precious yeah. to have. I fought with her those 14 months, did whatever I knew how, used our faith and went away the, you know, to support her in any way that I could for her to live the best life she could and then let her go when she was ready. Even though, like you said, there was a lot of suffering. You know, losing your mom is not an easy thing to do right. you know especially if you've gotten close some people they don't care they had the trauma and there's different stories but when you have a relationship with your mom 
I mean, it's even harder. It's like, but yeah, letting people own their own life. You, you get one life. It's your life. You have the right to do what you want with your own life. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's remarkably powerful that you even ask the question. You know, I, when, when you ask a question, like, are you, are you tired or, you know, and, and kind of prompted that. She said she was tired. I said, are you done fighting? Yeah, that, I'm, excuse me. Um, when you ask a question like that, you, you give people permission, um, you know, and, it, and sometimes that's what people need. Sometimes people need that permission to let go uh, for themselves, you know, and, and kind of balance that equation of do I do this for everyone else or do I do this for myself? I think it's really powerful that you, you sacrificed in that, in that way to, to give her that choice. Um, and God, it's hard, it's hard to live with, but it's also when you, when you learn how to approach it from a, from, I think a balanced, a balancing of the equations of, you know, what do I need and what does she need? Yeah. You, you, you recognize that any further life is just suffering. Yeah. You know, and, and to recognize that you're like, I don't want that for her. Right. Uh, you know, I don't, I, for, for any, another few days of, you know, no grief, uh, is not worth the suffering that she would go through. It's, it's powerful it, and it's hard. It's, it's remarkably hard to kind of sit through a situation like that. And I couldn't even imagine what it was like for, for Eric's parents. Um, I only know my part in it and I, you know, I've, I've definitely struggled in the past with that. I still, I still feel it. Um, even being removed from it, but I'll, at the same time, I feel like, you know, me and him could have been, could have been like brothers, you know, he, he liked a lot of the same things that I, that I did. And I only met him, you know, mm -hmm. in the final stage of his life. And it, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, the timing of it all, you know, to, to see that, um, and how little interaction you need to make a difference in someone, someone's life. I like legitimately, I met him for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And then we had a conversation on Facebook messenger and then I, I helped him. I, I gave him permission in many regards, um, because, only a few days after, you know, our, our last messaging, he was in the hospital and it was, you know, I just, I remember that on my birthday going to, going to see him right after one of my, one of my college courses. Um, it's hard. Yeah. It's very hard. Death is always hard. It always will be. Mm -hmm. But as, as you, I, I have no regrets in that. And I think I may grieve it at times. I may think about him at times, but I, I don't regret having that conversation and giving him. Yeah. What yeah I think grief he... and regret are two different things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I encourage people to live without regret. You need to live without regret. You have to do whatever you can. You, loving other people, you know, doing that for my mom, I was loving her more than loving myself. I was putting her in front of that and caring more about her than being self-centered. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm a self-love coach, not a self-centered coach. Right. <laughs> and so that's something I have to spell out for some people, especially being a person of faith, because there's some people in the faith circles who think the self is bad. They think everything about self is, you know, like selfish is bad. Selfish actually means to think about yourself. Right. Self-centered means things revolve around yourself. There are different things. You need to be selfish with your time. You need to be selfish with your life. You need to think about yourself, yep. you know, but the world doesn't revolve around me. So being self-centered is I'm really only going to hurt myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you bring up a good point and one that I've undoubtedly talked about before. Uh, when you, when you think of good and bad, I think you, you often make a mistake, uh, especially in relationships, because if you define good and bad as one thing, and then expect everybody else to fall in line with how you think, how your thinking appears, you're, you're going to, you're going to hurt people without a doubt. You're going to, you're going to push people away. You're going to isolate yourself. Um, but when you, when you learn how to negotiate what's right and wrong with people, that, that becomes something that is, uh, useful and functional, um, not to say there aren't certain things that you probably should hold a hard line on. Um, but for the most part, the, the, the superficial and uh, relatively unimportant things that you hold as good and bad, things like selfishness and selflessness, because um, I see the same thing in so many different ways. Um, you know, selfishness is always bad and selflessness is always good. And the reality is, is that I could, I can make the argument that selflessness has gotten you in the worst possible places that you've ever probably been. Yep. And yet you still hold that selflessness is the best thing that ever will be. Um, you often lack perspective and yeah, it's that you simple need perspective. You need context, Yep. you know, context. It's like, I mean, you're a veteran. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, killing is bad. Well, if you're in war, killing is a good thing, right? So right there is a perspective kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, I, that was the first thing I thought of where it's like, it depends on what's going on. I mean, yeah. you know, like the Bible says, for everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose. There's a time to kill and a time to heal for one example of that. And is there... You know, there was a time for my mom to fight and a time for my mom to be done. You know, there's have to, I like how you said that there's negotiating is how you put it. It's like, there's a lot more gray in the world than people want. And, and if we just be opinionated, then we're just not being helpful. Well, it, it certainly benefits you on social media, but that doesn't mean it benefits society. <laughs> well, being opinionated? Yeah. <laughs> If you're opinionated, you are very popular because people either agree with you or disagree with you. Um, but I, I think what that ultimately teaches us is culturally, we are supposed to be one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And that that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how, how long we need to to watch this play out on social media and in the, in politics and on, in every facet of our life to see that holding one side or the other and not negotiating is not going to work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I hope that, you know, the next, the next generation of political figures and, uh, cultural and social leaders have the ability to recognize that when you look across the aisle or across the, you know, across the stage at someone that disagrees with you, when you have the ability to negotiate with them, um, you, you then have the ability to create something together rather than, you know, assume that they're, they're not on board. Yeah. But we shall see, I suppose. <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> Certainly. Culture, culture is an interesting one. And I, I find myself, especially with the last episode um, with Doug Knoll, um, I find myself very intrigued by the, the idea that culture is kind of underpinned by emotion and how we culturally feel emotion. And so it feels like there's a, a very interesting kind of cyclic uh, development of emotion in, informs culture and then culture informs emotion. And that's an interesting cycle for me to kind of think about. Um, that is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm always, I'm a social thinker and a macro thinker, but I also like to kind of bring it down to micro and, and, and develop that idea like how does how does culture, you know, and I'm thinking social media right now, emotionally inform us, and then how do we then take that that culture, that social media sp- specifically, and then inform culture, and I and I see that very much being played out in terms of like trends and. Uh, how we argue, how we negotiate, how, you know, things like narcissism have become almost rampant at this point. Oh where, yeah, where definitely. We, I see that all the time. We we look at someone, right. And to think of narcissists as being a relatively small, you know, amount of, of, of the population, we now claim everyone's a narcissist if they are in any way self-centered or self-protective, um, and, and I, I find that really intriguing. I find that really interesting, not necessarily a good thing, but, um, and you just see humans kind of explain away reality into something that is, you know, culturally acceptable to now call people narcissists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not to, not to say, not to, not to say people aren't narcissists because they, people can be, it's just, mm-hmm. How do we? Everyone then... isn't a narcissist, though. Right, everyone's not a narcissist, and and you know where do we draw that line? Yeah. Um, you know, and and it's always interesting, right? Same with like, uh, uh, just so many things. It, social media is so interesting and and so powerful that I am really intrigued by the conversations we're having around it and where it's going. Yeah, and now we got Web three coming. Yeah. Or actually it's out there, but learning more about that with uh, my business mentor I'm in, involved with, he has been studying that for well over a year. And so I've been learning a little bit more about that. And my two paperback books are um, on the blockchain. They are registered on the blockchain. So nice. um, I want to be educated in that way as well, because that's something else that's 
that's coming. I mean, the world is always changing so fast and faster and faster and faster and faster. Right. Yeah. That's, that's in a whole nother, whole nother direction. Yeah. I, don't even, <laughs> I don't even know that yet. Um, well, Danielle, I feel like we could continue this conversation for a couple more hours, but you know, <laughs> we, we all, we all have to do other things. Yes, we do. Um, I I've got to ask you a final question. So strap in, get ready for this one. If there was one thing that you could leave the world, one message you could leave the world, what would that be? One message I could leave the world. It's the one I'm working hard on spreading right now, that people matter and that they're deeply loved, that God loves them, that they are worthy of love, and they're created in the image and likeness of love and how important love is. It's why I have become that lady on the internet who loves you. I started doing that at the beginning of the pandemic because fear was just so rampant and I saw what it was doing to people and love drives that out. You know, if you lavish, lavish that on, that can get rid of the fear and people are just consumed with fear and love can get rid of that. I want people to know that they are loved. I want to be known as, you know, I loved well. I loved well. I loved my family well. I loved society well. I did my best to spread love everywhere. Well, I think you will uh, undoubtedly live up to that. I have no doubt. And Danielle, I want to thank you very much for, for joining me and, and being as vulnerable as as you were with more than a few things yeah. um and also sharing the the vulnerability with with my moments so I, I appreciate that i always appreciate people that can just sit with me in situations like that um again i think thank that's you. important people need that genuineness on my podcast everything i do i record live and that's why I, many people, they edit, 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 and make everything so perfect, just like with social media, like, you know, it's the highlight reel, everything is wonderful, everything's wonderful, it's like, no, things don't go right, at the last time we tried to do this, my computer crashed, you yeah. know, it's like things happen, and people need to know that it's okay to not be okay all the time, and things happen, nobody's perfect, nobody's life is perfect, everybody has problems, and I think that's so important for people to know that we're all just real. Yeah, we are. Try to be. Both of us try to be. Again, thank you. And for all of those out there who are still listening to this episode, thank you. And we'll catch you next time on The Dylan Experience. Thank you. And that is it.